This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special episode of the podcast is the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. Every episode is special, my friend. I know. Maybe I should stop saying that because I kind of dumbed down special, right? I'm watering down special. <laughs> but this really is a special one because we're talking China. And we're the audience, China. we know from the metrics that the audience loves when we talk about China. So, But That's before right. we get to our guest... I, I, in fact, I tweeted the photo. We were talking about the glass kind of going up before the signature atrium entryway glass with the logo, and now it's done, and it looks spectacular. It really is incredible. Yeah, so we're talking about the entrance for the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center, which is the new part of Beach Hall, our headquarters there in Annapolis on uh, Hospital Point. And that construction project's been going on for about a, you know, a little over a year, but it's getting close to being done. And they've just been in this massive atrium with this special glass and the big Naval Institute logo that you can see from the moon, I think. It's huge. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks great. So uh, we've, been, we've been admiring the photos that uh, our CEO, Pete Dale, has been sending around uh, the last couple of days, which is really pretty cool to watch. And that uh, auditorium is getting close to done. The breakout rooms. And we're, we're expecting the, the building to be done. Uh, towards the end of next month, end of April. And then we'll start using things like the broadcast studio until it's safe to do, you know, in-person events. And we're anticipating a grand opening in the middle of September. So really looking forward to that. Yeah. The, like we call it our home field. So we've, we, we now are going to have a home field and uh, this is a game changer. It's really cool. It, you know, I went by there last weekend when you sort of see it, shape and form for real, it, it really does uh, start to, you know, come alive in your mind about how great that is going to be. So we'll be keeping the listeners up to date on how that evolves. And uh, it's very exciting. Uh, so our CEO is retired three-star uh, service warfare officer, Vice Admiral Pete Daly. And he's been in kind of shipyard mode, focusing on the details. And as you said, the very the various variables, he knows what you got to give to get. And uh, it's it's really been as much as a uh, you know, a challenge has been a passion project for him, and uh, he has really leveraged his his active duty shipyard uh, savvy to make this happen. And that includes the details like the ship's model we're going to have in the atrium. And what's that globe called? What's that floating? The, the Kugel Ball. Kugel Ball. <laughs> yeah, the Kugel Ball and the glass for the atrium. You know, all these details you know, as you've said, we've sacrificed schedule for quality and the pandemic environment has allowed us to do that. And so, again, we're looking for a best in class facility here. Yeah. One of the things that's funny about Pete is yeah, he was pre-com CEO and CEO of the you know, first deployment of the USS Russell, a DDG. 
and whenever in our department head meetings, whenever he talks about the construction workers for the Taylor Conference Center, instead of the word construction worker coming out, he always calls them the shipyard workers. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Freudian slip, but it happens every single time. Well, I hilarious. think it's relevant experience, obviously. And he's, you yeah, know, that's, that's what's right. made this thing happen in the, in the time it has happened. The other thing is with the COVID environment, the construction was considered essential work. So we did not uh, have to do any stoppage there. Obviously weather and materials as we're describing the atrium glass and other things have been mitigators in terms of sticking with the original schedule. But we were lucky in that in the state of Maryland, the construction of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center, as well as other projects in the state were considered essential work. So they never stopped. So once we get in the normal post-COVID environment and everybody's vaccinated and we're back to face-to-face, we're going to be up and running with a very state-of-the-art conference center. We're very, very excited about that. And we're looking forward to doing a lot of world-class events uh, as we go forward. All right. Why don't we get right to our guest? Yeah. So the March issue of Proceedings is on the streets now, and it's our our annual International Navy's focus. And so we've got 27, 28 um, international CNOs who responded to our challenge question this year. And we've got a couple of other great pieces that are focused on the Chinese Navy because the CNO of the Chinese Navy doesn't tend to uh, write for proceedings and he didn't didn't take us up on the invitation this year. But one of the articles that we have that I think is just fantastic is uh, a piece called China's Desert Storm Education. The author is Commander Mike Dom, U.S. Navy retired. And uh, Mike Dom is joining us on the show today from Alexandria, Virginia. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, Bill. Thanks. Great yeah, to be great. here. How you great doing, Ward? Doing great, Mike. Good to see you. So uh, Mike and I know each other. We served as shipmates at uh, U.S. Pacific Command, and we were focused on China in that tour about 10, 12 years ago. And then Mike was selected to be a naval attache, so he went back to Washington, went through attache school, went through language school, learned how to speak Chinese, went to Beijing for about three years from, what, 2012 to 2015. After that, came back and served as the senior naval intelligence officer for China at the Office of Naval Intelligence. So, uh, Mike, you are um, you are one of those uh, few people who are perfectly suited to write this article. No, it was a real pleasure. I mean, you contacted me, I think, last fall, and I was kind of surprised that we were coming up on the 30th anniversary of the Gulf War. But the Chinese took a lot of lessons away from that, and it was uh, it was a pleasure to kind of dig into it and outline kind of what they took away from the Gulf War and how it's kind of shaped them into the military and the Navy that they are today. Yeah, so let me just read a, a little bit from the opening um, paragraph of the article. It says, the similarities between the PLA and the vanquished Iraqi military, which was an army-centric force organized for a defensive campaign, created a sense of urgency as Beijing realized its military was ill-prepared to face a modern foe like the United States. The transformations in Chinese military strategy, technology, and force structure born out of the Gulf War have been seismic, shifting the balance of power in East Asia and portending global challenges for the U.S. military. So uh, you go on in the article to say that uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping has set a goal of the Chinese military being a world-class military by 2049. What does that look like? So, you know, world-class military, um, you know, the the Chinese are not so much a planning culture as they are a goal-oriented culture, right? We talk about the Chinese having a plan. They have a plan for the next 50 years. Um, really, they are focused on 
uh, on goals. And, and, and this goal is pretty broad, a world-class military, but it really means to be more like the United States. The United States was the sole remaining superpower when the Gulf War kicked off in 90, 1991. And now we talk about China as being a near-peer competitor with the United States, striving for that world-class status. Make no mistake, they've got a long way to go. And the you know the target for that goal was 2049, the centennial of the founding of the uh, People's Republic of China. Um, so they've got a ways to go. They're 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 working toward it, but they've really made amazing progress toward those ends in the last 30 years. So, Mike, you you point out in the um, in the article that in the last 20 years, the Chinese Navy has commissioned three over 300 new ships. So that is a massive buildup. Uh, what are those ships like in terms of quality and and also uh, technology and, and weapons capability compared to you know U.S. or NATO Navy uh, destroyers and carriers and you know capital ships? Sure. So what everybody's talking about now is this new Type 55 cruiser, uh, the Renhai. It's probably more akin to an Arleigh Burke destroyer, but it has 120. I'm sorry, 112 VLS tubes. Uh, and these are big VLS tubes. There's speculation that these VLS tube, uh, sorry, vertical launch system tubes may have uh, the capacity to hold an anti-ship ballistic missile. So this would be a ship-launched anti-ship ballistic missile, kind of taking that uh, anti uh, area denial, anti-access capability on the road, if you will. Um, but But wherever they are today with some of these new modern ships, it's really interesting to look back to 1990s, you know, the 1990s and 1991 and see just how far behind the Chinese were in 1991 compared to the United States. I mean, even Chinese commentators were saying that China was 30 or 40 years behind advanced Western militaries. They had a handful of capital ships, mostly based on 1950s Soviet designs. They had a, a real brown water navy just full of patrol craft, hundreds and hundreds of uh, you know, guided missile patrol craft and, and patrol boats. Um, but you know, after the Gulf War, they realized that they needed to kind of draw down from this army-centric force that was a lot like the Iraqi military and build out their army and I'm sorry, build out their air force and their navy. So they started acquiring the technology that they could get a hold of. Interestingly, they, they were getting a lot of technology from the West in uh, the 1980s. Uh, I think I say in the article it was, uh, uh, you know, enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of hedge against the Soviet Union at the time. So Europe and the United States were actually selling military technology to the Chinese. And we had outfitted a Type 52 Luhu class destroyer. Outfitted with U.S. gas turbine engines, German diesel engines, uh, Italian torpedo system, French sonar, French radar, um, and that you know that ship was finally commissioned in uh, I think it was 1993 or 1994, just after the Gulf War. Most of the Western Europe and the United States, you know, most of us stopped weapon sales to to the Chinese after the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. Uh, so sanctions went in place there. But the Chinese moved out with kind of a defanged, cash-strapped Russia and started purchasing technology from the Russians and then retro-engineering it into their own navy. 
So right after the Gulf War, the Chinese actually sent a delegation looking to buy an aircraft carrier, uh, an aircraft carrier they did not actually acquire until uh, the late 1990s or, or early, very, very early in the 2000s, I think. Um, but they did acquire 12 Kilo submarines uh, and four Sovremini destroyers, which they uh, took delivery of in the uh, in the 1990s. And those systems came with the weapons, right, with the technology, the weapons, the radars, um, a, a very interesting over-the-horizon radar came on the Sovremini that the Chinese have now retrofitted on all of their uh, modern ships, um, and also aircraft, right? Um, not just not just ships, but the uh, the Su-27 flanker. I was reading something the other day that uh, of of flankers or flanker variants, uh, the Chinese now have something they call the J-11 and the J-15, which are based on the Su-27 flanker. China actually has more flankers than Russia at this wow. point. So that's so they've kind of taken taken that ball and run with it, really uh, building on other people's technology. When I first submitted the article, I wanted to call it liberating other people's high technology, right? Kind of people's liberation army, liberating other people's high technology. But, you know, the Chinese military has 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 really focused on uh, integration and adaptation of foreign technologies much more than they've pursued kind of an independent um an independent uh, technology acquisition process. Before we talk about the specifics of what they learned from Desert Storm, let's go back and sort of provide some historical context about how China has approached defense, including you mentioned that 2049 is the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, and if it, if actually if you know a little bit of Chinese, the the Chinese characters for China are Zhongguo, Zhong is center or middle, and Guo is kingdom or state. So the name of China in Chinese is still Middle Kingdom, and you know God bless them, they do believe they are the center of the known universe, and that you know everything kind of revolves around them. And this whole if you've heard about this, we don't talk about it in the article, but. You know, Xi Jinping's China dream is really about, in his mind and in, in a lot of the Chinese nationalists' mind, it's about returning China to its rightful place in the world, which is at the center of politics, technology, and economics. And this world-class military, I think getting back to this kind of initial question that we started with, that world-class military is to support a world-class China which is, again, back at the center of economics, politics, and uh, technology. Chinese have always been really interested in trying to understand the character of war, the nature of things, uh, looking at not just their own experiences, but other people's experiences with warfare and combat to try to der derive the correct way to think about modern warfare. So after the after the Second World War and the Chinese Civil War, where the communists were fighting with the nationalists that eventually fled to Taiwan, uh, Mao Zedong had this idea of a people's war. That lasted from 49 till about 85. And people's war was a total war concept, right? It was a defensive struggle. It involved national mobilization. And just like the Iraqi forces, it, it was a ground-centric uh, operation. Moving into the 1980s and then into the 1990s, that's when China realized that change was afoot when it came to modern warfare. They were looking at the Arab-Israeli wars from the 60s and the 70s. They were looking at the Falklands War 
very intently, and also the U.S. operations in Grenada. Uh, but when it came to Desert Storm in 1991, they realized that warfare was being dominated by high-tech weapon systems, particularly precision strike and information warfare-related capabilities. So in 1993, China's Central Military Commission issued new guidance, kind of a new strategy for the People's Liberation Army. And they talked about fighting local wars under modern high-technology conditions. And we're going to talk about that high technology and some of the things that they invested in. We've, we've already touched on, you know, purchasing the ships and the aircraft. But this I wanted to point out that this idea of local war is often misunderstood. Uh, we still today have local war under informationized conditions or winning informationized local wars. Local wars needs to be understood juxtaposed against people's war or total war. Right. So it's not necessarily a war that is local to China. It is a localized war. Chinese would say that U.S. operations with the Russians in Syria is a localized war or a partial war. It's not a total war, but it's contained to that region, you know, even if superpowers are involved on either side of the conflict. So. Just wanted to point that out. I thought it was, I always thought, think it's an interesting takeaway because I hear so many people, it's like, well, they're just going to fight on China's periphery. I'm like, no, they could be fighting a local war in Africa in 10 years, right? So that's that's where they're going with that. But to, to double click on that point, Mike, that is a new concept. And this is when we start talking about the chart, the graph in the article that does really illustrate the way they, they've been doing defense procurement on steroids, they now conceive of, let's just call it an expeditionary force to the degree that maybe they didn't before. You know, looking at where they were in 1991, again, they were a brown water Navy. They were focused on the defense of China. They had this, this people's war concept where really, whether it was the United States operating on their periphery in Korea during the Korean conflict or the Soviet Union on their northern border in the 1960s, which created some really high tensions between China and the Soviet Union. China really couldn't project power beyond its borders. I mean, they had the largest standing army in the world in the, 19, uh, in the 1980s and even into the 1990s, but they couldn't really project power anywhere, right? They, it, it was all about keeping people out of the Middle Kingdom, and if anybody dared step foot in the Middle Kingdom, pound, 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 and push them back out. Right. That was that was the whole point. Um, as China's economic interests started to uh, started to develop, China started to push out more economically, looking for more resources to fuel its its modern economy into the 1990s and 2000s. China needed a military to, uh, you know, to support its economic ambitions. Right. So they really have started to uh, develop you know, large deck amphibious ships, aircraft carriers, heavy lift aircraft. The Y-20 looks a whole lot like the C-17. Um, global C-4ISR coverage, right? Intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. All of these satellites going up, space-based assets. That's not the kind of stuff that you need for a war that is local to China, but it could be for a local war somewhere else. Maybe one of these loans that China's given out goes bad and some 
you know, third world dictator decides he doesn't want to pay back a Chinese loan. Well, the People's Liberation Army might have something to say about that in the not too distant future. And I think while I don't know that China is necessarily striving for global domination, as some might characterize it, they are developing a force that could conceivably do something like a desert storm uh, sometime in the next 20 or 30 years. So, Mike, one of the concepts that's been a constant in the pages of proceedings over the last you know, four or five years, uh, and despite the chagrin of the, the former chief of naval operations who didn't like the term, is uh, anti-access area denial, or A2AD. And, and some people think that that is actually a, a Chinese term. You and I know that it's not. How do the Chinese look at that, or how do they think of it, or is that an Americanization of a Chinese of another Chinese term. Yeah, so there is actually no Chinese term. When the when the Chinese I mean they do have a term for anti-access area denial because they need a way to talk about how we talk about them. Right? So but beyond that, um, within Chinese doctrine, within Chinese military doctrine, there is no anti-access area denial concept per se. Uh, in point of fact, uh, there, there's a great article out there. It was written by uh, Chris Toomey at the uh, at the Naval Postgraduate School and uh, M. Taylor Fravell from MIT, and it's called Projecting Strategy, the Myth of Chinese Counterintervention. Uh, it was written, I don't know, seven or eight years ago now, but you can find it online. It's a great article. And it really talks about how we've kind of made up this idea that China has a counterintervention strategy or that they have a, a, an A2AD anti-access area denial strategy. Now, to be sure, they absolutely have anti-access capabilities, right? One of the things that we've written about in the, in the pages of proceeding is like the DF-21D, the carrier killer missile, or any of these long-range cruise missiles, bombers, long-range aircraft, whatever, right? There are absolutely anti-access area denial capabilities, and the Chinese have a plan to use them. But that's different than having an, you know, an overarching strategy of anti-access area denial. It doesn't exist. We've kind of made it up. So I don't like the term either for reasons that are a little bit different you know, than what, what uh, the former CNO didn't like it for. But, but it, had, you know, it, makes, it makes China sound like they're in some defensive crouch, like just waiting for us to you know, knock down the door and, and, and come in and... and they're not in a defensive crouch. In point of fact, Chinese doctrine and a lot of the capabilities that that we see that the Chinese could possibly employ are, are probably going to be used in an offensive or preemptive manner, right? Now, the Chinese have this idea of, of active defense. The guy that I just mentioned, uh, M. Taylor Favell, wrote a book called Active Defense, really does a great job of charting out kind of the evolution of, of Chinese strategy. Active defense means being strategically defensive, right? Like, I'm not going to go looking for a fight. But active defense means being operationally offensive. If I think you're going to punch me, I'm going to punch you first. So China's, China's military doctrine, anyway, is really leaning forward in terms of how they want to employ these capabilities. If they think the United States is going to intervene in a conflict, if they think a regional actor is going to do something, China wants, you know, the People's Liberation Army wants to have the operational initiative and they want to get to the fight first and start driving the op tempo. 
right? So they're going to they're going to employ a lot of these capabilities I think in a more offensive manner much more than than we think because we're always talking about it in terms of A to AD like they're just this they've got this defensive strategy where they're just waiting for us. Not true. Not true. So when you served as an attaché in Beijing did you have, ever have any conversations, like real meaty conversations with, with counterparts there uh, about this, about how the Americans were writing about A2AD and, and they were confused by it? Or, uh, you know, did they ever school you and just say, hey, you guys are all wrong on this? What, how, what, what kind of conversations did you have around this topic with them? Yeah, so it was really hard to, to corner PLA officers and, and have them give you a, a straight and honest answer. Uh, to, to matters of strategy and things like that. Um, I will tell you that that my experiences with the PLA Navy and we you know we get to drinking with them and 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 you you try to be diplomatic and you you know they had just they had just rolled out their aircraft carrier they had just landed J-15s on the aircraft carrier and you try to compliment them and like wow you know what an achievement. Right. And, and, you know, look, I can say this with like we've got 12 aircraft carriers and we've been doing this for decades. But you guys, I mean, this is awesome what you're doing. Right. And and at the time, it wasn't necessarily as adversarial as it's become over the last several years. Uh, Admiral Greenert, uh, who was the CNO at the time, had a, had a very engaging approach uh, with the People's Liberation Army Navy. But you try to compliment them and they would be like, oh, no, no. It, you know, we are like nowhere close to where you are. And thank you for the compliment. But we're just getting started. And and you think that you'd almost think that they were trying to diminish their own accomplishments to get away from what they often refer to as the China threat conspiracy. Right. That everybody's conspiring against China and making China out to be a threat. And these guys are just towing the party line, trying to to kind of get you off this idea that China has this advanced modern military. But in a lot of ways, you know, we're the ones that are comparing apples to oranges, right? We're the ones that are comparing uh, the U.S. military capabilities in East Asia to Chinese capabilities in East Asia where China lives, where China has the home field advantage. But for a professional officer in the People's Liberation Army, they're looking at they cannot deploy carrier battle groups worldwide. They cannot, you know, they, they've got three ships in the Gulf of Aden on a counter piracy patrol. And a lot of intelligence folks will say, it's like, oh, look at, you know, they've been doing this for years, these counter pirates. It's three ships. They don't have worldwide basing. They don't have worldwide deployments. They don't have sustained, you know, sustained forces overseas. And so, you know, getting back to the world class military question that you opened with, that's one of the components of having a world class military is is having that global presence, having that worldwide presence. And and so when you do compliment the Chinese, they they do come across as very humble in many cases. That is now starting to change. I'll I'll give you that. But certainly when I was there just five years ago, six years ago, they were very humble and they meant it. Because they knew what it was going to take to get from where they are to that world-class status where they could, you know, talk to a United States military officer and say, yes, we're just as good as you are and mean it. So they still have a, they still have a long way to go. Uh, but make no mistake, they have invested in technologies that 
in that home game fight that we keep talking about in East Asia, it could be really challenging if we want to go break down the door and do something. So as we talk about, however you want to label it, the return to peer conflict, high-end fight, there's a great chart that I was talking about before on page 24 and 25, and also in the online version, it's it's embedded in that online article that really is illustrative with respect to the numbers. So in the legend, pink is Soviet Russian, blue is Western, and you know that includes Israel and France and so forth and so on, as well as American systems, and then white is Chinese. And it's broken down by platforms, submarine service ships, airplanes, air-to-air missiles, helicopters, and specifically with surface ships, there's a whole lot of white on that chart. So as we talk about great power competition, as we, you know, I'll say war game or handicap what a war would be like in the event that we, you know, it was to go hot around the Spratleys or they try to take Taiwan or whatever your Tom Clancy scenario might be. How would this go down? Is it quality over quantity? Is it, you know, as we scrutinize our program of record and as we fret about our infrastructure with respect to the shipyards, we had a great conversation with former acting SECNAV Thomas Modley a couple of episodes ago. And, you know, he started his tenure trying to develop the 355 plan for President Trump. And obviously uh, that was interrupted by COVID. But his first thing was, we are lacking the infrastructure to even get anywhere close to that, not to mention 500 or something. So with respect to this chart on page 24, 25, how would this go down? So I, I think it's important to note that you know China has built up its Navy. We talk about commissioning something like 300 hulls uh, in the Navy in the last 20 years, making the PLA you know, ship for ship, and I think even in terms of tonnage, the largest Navy in the world. They have built that up within, in many cases, within their civilian shipyards. Um, when, when the price of oil went way up, the people stopped shipping things and the Chinese had built all the shipyard capacity that they were left with and the PLA kind of came to the rescue. So when the price of oil went up and shipping went on the decline, people stopped ordering up so many commercial ships, uh, you know, big container ships and break bulk carriers and things like that. And the PLA Navy really came to the rescue, putting in lots of orders for naval combatants. And if you look at that chart that you were just referring to with all the white, all the kind of innovation and development within the Chinese Navy itself, a lot of those are smaller ships, right? You've got the uh, Jiangdao Light Frigate, or sometimes called Corvette, the Type 56 Corvette. They have ordered up 70 of those. I think they've got 50 in commission right now. The Jiangkai uh, FFG guided missile frigate before that. They've got 30 of those. 60 Hobei uh, patrol craft came out in the early 2000s. These are catamarans, stealthy sort of uh, guided missile patrol boats. They've built up quite a bit of quantity within their Navy. And I think that quantity may be actually what carries the day. Uh, you were specifically asking about quantity versus quality. And there is this principle within China about, you know, kind of it's good enough, right? And sometimes I'm left to think that within the U.S. military and our defense acquisition process, we will spend a billion dollars trying to get to the 90% solution 
and then we will spend another billion dollars trying to get to the 95% solution. China is not investing in that kind of quality. They have, uh, I guess this goes back to like the uh, the conference center, right? You were talking about schedule, speed, and, and cost. Uh, the Chinese have gone for speed and cost, right? Not necessarily quality. Now, don't let it be said that that Mike Tom came on this podcast and said that China doesn't have quality weapons. They absolutely have quality platforms. They absolutely have quality weapons, but not in the kinds of volume that you might think, right? A lot of this is they got to the 80% solution. They spent a lot less money doing it and they moved on and just built a lot of those. But that quantity has a certain quality. So if they are playing the home game and they can put ships every few miles across the East China Sea or the South China Sea and network those in with those little islands that are down there, those artificial islands in the South China Sea, that is really going to work well for them when the U.S. shows up and tries to kick in the door. And talk a little bit about the quality of those ships in terms of damage control capability, in terms of thickness of hull steel, those kinds of things. Uh, You had mentioned this to me uh, one other time that maybe a little bit less than what a U.S. DDG is built like. Yeah, I think I think it's important that to note, you know, to note that that they're they're built in these commercial shipyards. And in many cases, I think like the Hobays and the light frigates, the uh, Type 56 Jiangdao frigates stand out in that category where these were built in commercial shipyards. The CNO, when I was in Beijing, would brag that they were cranking out one of those Corvettes every single month. Right? One ship a month was coming out of it. So these are being built with commercial shipyard technology. And I've been underway twice now on one of those Type 56 frigates, and the you know the frames are really far apart. They're not they're not made to take a hit. They're one cruise missile away from going to the bottom of the ocean, but you can put a lot of them out there, and they can give you at least initially they can give you a lot of radar coverage. They can give you a lot of ASW coverage, so they're covering that large large area. But you know we're going to need we're not going to need that many weapons necessarily to address each and every each and every one of those ships if we can find them so the the bottom line that we want to address is are we postured to counter the threat and and so you know this is the high-end fight threat the more limited war threat so if you put on your intel officer hat what do you think with respect to those two extremes and which is the most likely one to happen? So let's say during the Biden administration, maybe a, a longer horizon, the next 10 years, if we were to actually have something cook off with the Chinese, would it be directly against them in a full up high end fight or is it going to be through proxies or it would be a more limited like the FONOPS and what we're seeing in the uh, South China Sea, what, what what do you think? And and based on that scenario, are we training appropriately? And does the program of record support what we need to carry out that those missions? Okay, so how long have you got, Ward? <laughs> I've got we're, five we're minutes. Easy we got five. You got five minutes, and you're asking an <laughs> intel officer to opine about strategy. Yeah. Okay. Well, just so, give give me the the back of the envelope version of give what the I back just of the asked. Envelope version. Yeah. Um, so tell you what, I'm going to take it back to the Gulf War, 
there was an article that just came out last week in a Chinese magazine called uh, Hangqiu, uh, basically translates to Around the World. It's a, it's a Chinese state-owned uh, publication owned by Xinhua News. The title is called Changes in Warfare Con- Concepts Inspired by the 30th Anniversary of the Gulf War. So it's kind of the Chinese version of the article that I wrote for Proceedings. And I'll just read a little bit of this. It says, the Gulf War was a conventional war in which the performance of mechanized weapons and equipment was approaching their physical limits, while information-based weapons and equipment were in their infancy. Although the Gulf War retained the old look of mechanized warfare with large core-sized formations and centralized logistics support, the outline of informationized warfare emerged in the Gulf War. The basic principles of traditional mechanized warfare could no longer fully adapt to the informationized combat environment. And so this is something that I've talked about before. I've actually written about it in some other proceedings articles. And this this idea of putting information and information control at the center of your operational concepts, that's what the Chinese took away from the Gulf War. It was superior U.S. C4ISR and then pulling apart Iraqi C4ISR so they were deaf and blind. And we pretty much had freedom to do whatever we wanted on the battlefields of Iraq. The Chinese have made massive investments in C4ISR over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, they They have developed this concept of informationized warfare, and they have put information control at the center of their operational concepts. Where have we put information control in our operational concepts? I would argue, and I have argued, that the United States still holds firepower and maneuver at the center of its operational concepts. We want hulls, we want ships, we want submarines, and we want weapons. And those are what is going, you know, if we got more of those and we got better of those, that's what's going to win the day. But we're in the information age. And I think the debate that needs to be had is, you know, they're talking on the joint staff now about this concept of information advantage. They're not quite sure what it is. They're talking about this, uh, what is it, joint all-domain command and control, JADC2, I think. Um, that's, that's in the mix right now. But is information and information control going to be a supporting function? Or have we, have, are we really approaching the performance limits of kind of these industrial-aged weapons, right? We, we may have a small number of hypersonic glide vehicles that can penetrate deep into the battle space, but we're not going to have a lot of them. So how are we going to use the ships that we have, the submarines that we have, the aircraft that we have, the missiles that we have, and how are we going to undergird them with the kind of precision information that we need in the modern battle space to take on the Chinese? Because their approach, which we don't, you know, we focus a lot on the things that I put on this chart in terms of weapon systems and, and how those developed, But there is another part to that about this, you know, C4ISR architecture that China has built up. And I talk about that a little bit in the article. Uh, That is really what China sees as the force multiplier in modern warfare. They want to do to the United States Navy what we did to the Iraqis. Disaggregate the joint force, pull the fleet apart electronically, and, and, and deny information to those forward deployed destroyers. And then step two, pick them off with precision fires. 
right? We go right to the, how do we defeat the DF-21D? How do we defeat long-range cruise missiles? How do we find the Chinese submarines? And we don't focus on step one. Step one in the Chinese strategy is retain superior C4ISR for the Chinese military and deny information to ships, aircraft, and submarines in the United States military. Once we get past that, then we can focus on the challenge of precision fires. And, and if you think back to 30 years ago, Desert Storm, and you're watching the first couple nights of the war, the star of the show was the F-117, which went after those C-4 ISR targets within Iraq, right? It was the command and control decimating that camp command and control so that then the rest of the force just could roll in and do what it wanted to the Iraqi military. And the Iraqi military didn't know what was coming. Their tankers didn't know what was coming. Their Navy didn't know what was coming. Their air defenders didn't really know what was coming. It was, they became deaf and blind. And, and the Chinese conceive of things like electronic warfare much more broadly than the United States. I, we, could, we could go on for another half hour about my ideas about deficiencies in electronic warfare in the Navy and in the Department of Defense in general. But the Chinese think about stealth as an electronic warfare capability because stealth is what defeats radar. So they're, they're, they're conceiving of electronic warfare and combining that with cyber and realizing cyber and EW effects together uh, in, in, a, in a very comprehensive manner. And again, it all goes back to what they saw in the Gulf War. And they gave U.S. electronic warfare forces a whole lot of credit in the Gulf War. Uh, much more so than I ever realized we had electronic warfare forces in the Gulf War, but they thought it was like, this is awesome. This article is called China's Desert Storm Education. It's in the March issue of Proceedings, and it's also available online. The author is Commander Mike Dom, U.S. Navy retired, a good friend and colleague, uh, and a great Proceedings author who's uh, you've probably written two or three articles per year over the last couple of years. Thank you very much, Bill Ward. I appreciate it. It's been a good time. All right, well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.